Hello, and welcome to my lecture series. My name is Nick Lugo, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I just want to give an explanation or a reminder as to why you're here and why I do these lectures in the first place. It may seem true to you that the reason to come to one of these lectures, or a lecture in general, is to learn, and you wouldn't be wrong, but it's much more than that. You're here to act. The learning part is obvious, but not the acting. Often, I, more than anybody else, know how to act, but simply just don't act. For example, it's not a groundbreaking discovery that going to the gym is important. This is something that we all know. Yet, the hardest part is, and I'll say it again, action. As you know, the lectures that I'll take you through are hero stories, and there is much to learn from them. Therefore, the first lesson to learn from these stories and these movies is a simple one, one that you already know. Heroes follow their heart. They don't think about following their heart. It is action that separates the heroes from the rest. The goal of this lecture is to facilitate thought and action, as the two are so desperately intertwined. Therefore, I make this statement that I say with absolute conviction. If this lecture series does not change the actions you take in this world, then I have failed you. This idea of action is one that I explore with incredible depth in these lectures. Finally, if you're looking for a more direct way to act, I suggest you check out my new book, Breaking Your Bad Habits in 150 Pages, A Hero's Journey. My book takes these abstract lessons and applies them directly to you and any bad habit or human weakness that you might be struggling with. I place you in the shoes of a hero and show you how to be both a thinker and a doer, all in 150 pages for those of you who don't consider themselves readers. You can find the book on Amazon by searching it or by clicking the link in this video. Now, let's get on to the lecture. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Lecture 5 of Beauty and the Beast. And, well, I wanted to start this off with a story. I want to start this off with a cool story. And, um, and by the way, if you haven't seen Lecture 1 and you're watching this on YouTube, click above. But I think this story is something that actually blew my mind the other day, and I think this is a really great time to tell it. So... The Beauty and the Beast, they make, a, they make a claim, right? They make this wide, far-reaching claim that this is a tale as old as time, and it's true as it can be. And, well, that's a weird thing, right? How is it true as it could be? It's a fairy tale. What's going on? And the story that I want to tell you is something that's absolutely crazy. My friend, at the moment, is going through a Beauty and the Beast story. Like, in actual real life, she is in a love story with a guy, and um, and she is going through Beauty and the Beast, and I think this is an absolutely incredible way to start it off. And I think this is really, really, it's really cool. It's a really, really cool idea. So I'll tell you the story first. I'll tell you exactly what happens, and then I'll tell you what happened and how it relates to Beauty and the Beast. So I have a friend. Um, I won't say her name, but, but she's the perfect representation of Belle, right? That's that's the that's the best way of looking at it. She is literally like the well, we'll say the most well put together woman I've ever met in my entire life. Like the thing about her is she knows what she wants and she goes for it. You know, that's that's one of the things that I really see with women nowadays, or at least in my time, you know, I see that there are two different types of women, right? There's a woman that knows what she wants and then there's the woman that doesn't know what she wants. And the, the fundamental difference between the two is if you, and, and this is the same with men, right? It's, it's literally the same idea with men, but the difference between the two is that if you ask a girl or if you ask this person, right, do you want to do something? Then if they know what they want, they have the strength and they have the, we'll say, knowledge of themselves to say no. And, um, and well, that's what she's like. That's what she's like. So the best part about her is that she's just very, very strong and she knows what she wants. And if, and if it's not within the bounds of what she wants, she'll just say, no, get out of here. You know, she'll have the confidence, she'll have the strength to, to say, get out of here. For the people who don't really know what they want and, and trust me, I've met a lot of guys and girls like this. You know, what ends up happening is 
They just kind of flow with the winds. If someone asks them what to do, they really don't know what they want to do. And since they don't know what they want to do, they just say yes to everything. And then, and then the problem is that they're a product of their environment, right? They're literally just what their environment is. They're not their own selves. And, well, my, my friend, well, my friend and Belle, right? That That's that's what the connection here. They're both like that. They're both incredibly strong, incredibly well to put together, and they know how to say no. So, so she, she is, a, she is a strong core. She knows who she is and she knows what she wants. So then she meets this guy and he's probably the exact opposite. He's the perfect representation of the beast. Not angry, not like overly masculine, overly animalistic, but just something like still acting off animal natures or something like the better the best way of saying it is undeveloped right he's undeveloped and and the problem with him is that well he was first of all parents got divorced you know rough family life rough childhood and then also he was able to or at least he had enough money to be able to cover all of his problems with goods right with goods and value and trips and things like that and well the unfortunate reality is he he never really discovered who he was because he was always spending so much time distracting himself and i think that's the fundamental problem that i've seen amongst men today it's just like you know we we spend so much time just doing things that we don't actually figure out who we are in the process so this is really the representation of him and um and he is probably a good representation of the prince, right? The prince in the beginning who, you know, essentially has all that he wants and doesn't really have any need to, to go beyond that. He says, okay, I have a shallow interest in something like money or something like things or something like value, and I don't really care about anything beyond that. So then um, so then they get into this relationship, and it's, it's, really, a, it's really perfect because what ends up happening is you have someone like my friends, right? The girl who's Belle. And the thing the thing about why it works so well is that she's strong enough to handle his problems, right? Because that's essentially what's going to end up happening. He has these problems and he needs to sort out these problems. It's like, fair enough. That's a good thing. But the problem is you need someone strong enough who is, who is who has already handled most of their problems and is willing to bear your load, right? And who is willing to, we'll say, handle your problems without making it their own problem. Because that's that's one of the things about Belle that Belle does so great throughout this entire movie is that she never makes his problems her problems. You know, it's like, that's so easy to do. I actually, I personally got into a relationship in high school where that's exactly what I did. You know, it's high school. I think I was a freshman and 14 15 years old something like that and my uh, i was a pretty i was a pretty well put together kid and when i say well put together i just kind of flat on emotions didn't really have too many like anxiety depression nothing like that i have a pretty good family so you know didn't really have any struggles on that front but she had all of it she had all of it the girl that i was with she had everything put together it was really bad and um and the unfortunate reality there was I didn't know who I was. I couldn't bear her load. So when I essentially opened her up, when I started finding all these, you know, all these problems that existed within her and all the all the things that she needed to develop, I took them onto myself. And I started throughout that time. I developed something like anxiety, definitely something like depression, and things started falling apart in my life. It was it was a really really tough time. Once. I held strong for a little bit, but then after a while, once I started developing those things, it was really, really brutal. But the best part about Belle and the best part about my friend is she was able to hold it up, right? She, or at least so far, and I think she's she's good on that front. She's able to sort of carry it on, right, and say, okay, I could bear your load and also remain strong. So we'll say maybe that's the precursor to Beauty and the Beast, right? That's the precursor to this archetype of Beauty and the Beast and, and being something like Belle. And um, Okay, so we got that. So now what happens is she... So he's very insecure, 
right? He's very insecure, and she really likes him, so that's good, right? There's she she's decided that she's going to sort of put in the initial investment to to help him, you know, and and also you know get into a positive relationship. So what happens is she starts opening him up. Right, that's exactly what happens. You know, this was a, probably a few months ago. She just starts opening him up. You talk more. He starts revealing more about himself. He starts letting his guard down and things like that. And that, if we're getting to the idea of Beauty and the Beast, that's the idea of letting her into his West Wing. Right. So, so essentially, my friend, she went into his West Wing, and he couldn't handle it. He just couldn't handle it. This is the thing that I noticed amongst people who are incredibly insecure, and I noticed this mostly throughout high school. One of the things that, that really, really killed me was like, okay, you have, you see a typical high school relationship, right? Your typical archetypal high school relationship is the group of people, two people who get into a relationship for like two weeks and then they break up for two weeks and then they get together for two weeks and that cycle kind of keeps happening and they get together and break up like four or five times and the reason behind that is something like both of them are so unsure of who they are and both of them are so vulnerable that every time that someone gets a little too far and gets in a little too deep inside that vulnerability the walls that we sort of put up you just lash out and completely end it and this is this is one of the things that i've noticed um this is one of the things that happened to her so what happened was she started breaking down his walls and she started, you know, essentially discovering who he is and discovering his vulnerabilities and all of these things, childhood issues, all that, and repression. And what happened was he broke up with her. He broke up with her. Just like just like the beast who tells her to get out of the West Wing, don't like I never want to see you again, like leave all that stuff. And the reason why is is very simple, right? The idea of the rose is that it's a flower. Right, the idea of suppression, these repressed thoughts that we have, is that they're flowers and they're so damn vulnerable. Right? Why is the the flower covered in a glass case? Because it's so damn vulnerable, and all you gotta do is touch it the wrong way, and um, and and it falls, right, and it dies. So, so that's what happened. She started when it when it started figuring him out a little bit more, and um, and he broke up with her right away, and. He actually ended up telling her, I think it was like a week later, he told her, he was like, I don't know why I did that. Like, I cannot explain to you why I did that. There was just, it was just an impulsive thing where I was just like, I, I just, I just can't handle it anymore. I just can't do it. So, um, so in my interpretation, that's something like the, the beast in him that's saying, wait a second, you're getting too close. You're getting too close. This is a little uncomfortable. I can't deal with it. So now, well, that's what—that's the point where she's at right now. So, so that's why I wanted—that's why I wanted to put it there because that's exactly where we are in the story right now. So the next part that happens in Beauty and the Beast is, and this is exactly what happens in um, with her, right? Is that Belle decides to run away, right? So the Beast screams at her, tells her to get out, and Belle decides to run away, and well, the meaning behind that is super simple, right? It's super simple. Bell says, well, well, yeah, well, yeah, super simple, okay? All she says is, I don't, I don't want to deal with this, right? I thought maybe I could put in the investment before. I thought maybe there was something there, but why, why would I want to put in this investment? What is it worth if he's just going to scream at me? And you can't, you can't <laughs> argue with that because, because there's probably something that, um, that's wrong with that. And then at the same time, there's there's an idea in the hero mythology, and I like I like bringing the hero and the heroine mythology together because I think it's there there are a lot of parallels between them. There's an idea that when the hero decides to face the dragon, the first thing that he does is run away because he thought that he was gonna face you know we'll say maybe like a a 10-foot dragon who's kind of big and kind of scary, and he thinks he can handle that. But then what happens when he sees a 20-foot dragon that breathes fire in his face right away when he actually confronts the beast for the first time? And 
what the hero does is they always run away. And the meaning behind that is you thought it was going to be easy, right? Belle as the child hero. Belle as the as the bright-eyed the bright-eyed starry-eyed kid thinks it's going to be incredible, but then she realizes, wait a second, this is not as it seemed. This is not as easy as I thought. And so she runs away and so this is the point where my friends at and I wanted to I wanted to tell you the advice that I gave her because obviously I've been working through this Beauty and the Beast story and by the time that I was that she was telling me about this I actually I finished the the um well I finished I finished this this lecture or at least the like the planning for the lectures so I, the first thing I told her she says okay what should I do right I'm at the point where he just broke up with me and I don't know what I want to do Right? Do I wanna do I wanna see if I can make it work with him? Do I wanna put back in the investment? Or do I want to just say, screw it? Like, why would you break up with me? That's so she she said, she's like, this is so disrespectful that he did that, which is true. And um and I don't even know if I'd want to stay. So I told her two things. The first thing I told her was, watch Beauty and the Beast, because because damn, like this is one potential way that she could that she could solve it, right? There's this is one potential way, and I think I think that the fact that she's lived it out to this point is is something that's remarkable to me. We're already like I don't know an hour in through the movie, and and she's already lived it essentially to the T. And the second thing I told her was, "Do you think you can handle it?" Yeah. Well, I told her three things. Okay, so I said, "Do you think you can handle it?" Because you don't want to run into that that problem where you're not strong enough and then you know the the essential problems end up falling on you and the answer that she said was yes i was like okay cool the next question and i said this was the most important do you actually want to invest right because what you're going to do right now is you're going to invest your multi your emotional energy your time your um your trust right like you're going to put all of this you're going to put a huge bet on this guy are you willing to invest and um and that's a big question, right? That's a big question. You got to you got to see, you know. There are cuz cuz the easy answer, the easy answer that she could have said was no. There are a thousand other men that that could easily replace him. And and why would I want to why would I want to invest in this one guy? What's the point? But she didn't say that, right? But that that could have been the easiest point to make and say, okay, yeah, I'm not going to deal with that. But she said, she said, I think I'm going to handle it. So I want to see where that goes. But I think that's a really, really, that's really crazy, right? What is she going to do? She's going to try to essentially keep going into his West Wing. That's all she's going to end up doing. She's going to keep going into his West Wing, and we're going to get onto the, <laughs> like, the the next part of this movie explains exactly what she is going to do or at least what she should do. So I think that's there's something incredibly special about that. But anyways, so what happens is Belle decides to leave and right away she faces these wolves, right? She sees a bunch of wolves and the wolves try to kill her. And I'll explain that later. I'll explain that later. But what happens is, so the beast comes in, and he protects her, right? He protects her, saves her from the wolves, and and sacrifices himself for her. Because what happens is the wolves kind of take him down, and even though he scares off the wolves, he he kind of faints and and loses consciousness, and and yeah, like you know, like really, really really chose to sacrifice himself for it, really put his all into it, and really got hurt for it, right? Like, he actually received some sort of problem for doing it, and so then what happened is, Belle decides, so she sees him lying in the background, right over here, and um, here's another thing, right? Here's him on the floor, and she sees him lying in the background, and she says, okay, what do I want to do? I have the option right now, I could just walk away and leave him here, or I could stay and help him, right? I could stay and choose to invest, and that's exactly what my friend is at right now, and this is this is such an important point in the movie, because what she's really deciding right now is, 
do I want to remain as a child? Do I want to remain as somebody full of potential, somebody full of all these options, somebody full of this bright looking view on the world? Or do I want to actualize it? Do I want to finally take my my ideas, my ideologies, all the things that I've been putting forth and and take action on them and put them in the real world and the so there, so there's two ways of looking at it, right? In one case, you could say she's giving up her freedom, right? Because the thing about a child is, and the thing about any sort of plan is that when you're, well, we'll say, yeah, yeah. So the thing about any sort of plan is that there are so many directions in which you can go, right? Let's say, let's say you're a kid and you want to be, you could be an astronaut, you could be a doctor, you could be a, you could be a baseball player, you could be all of these things. But what ends up happening is once you decide to take a step down one path, so let's say you decide to be a baseball player, you cut off all the other paths, right? And and that's not easy, right? What you're doing there is you're giving up your freedom and you're giving up your freedom to choose paths and you're giving up your potential. You're giving up the the potential use that you possibly could have been, right? The potential astronaut, the potential doctor, whatever. And you're also giving up something like the illusion that you could be everything. That's one of the things that I find to be the the most difficult to let go. Because what happens is, and this is something that I've seen across my life, definitely, is that... Well, I said I said this for well, we'll relate it back to the entrepreneur example. The reason why I never got started on being an entrepreneur is because it kills the dream of being an entrepreneur. It kills the dream of oh yeah, you know I'm gonna go live on a yacht and I'm gonna have all this influence on the world and I'm gonna make all the difference. And it changes it to wait a second, that's not exactly how it is. And maybe the plan that I established, maybe the the innocent plan that I wanted to go on in the beginning. Maybe it's maybe it's not going to be like that, and maybe maybe I'm not even going to get there, right? Because the the problem with taking a step towards your goals, whatever that is, is that you realize that it's not as easy as you thought. And for some people, and this this is what I've noticed, you know, for some people, it's just better to keep the illusion. It's just better to keep the illusion that maybe one day I will get there and maybe one day I'll be happy. And I've seen this all the time in business school. You know, the thing about it is I have every time I come up to somebody, I always ask them. And this is the thing that kills me. I say, what do you want to do? And most likely they say something like finance, accounting, you know, those soul sucking jobs. And the reason why I say soul-sucking soul jobs in this case is because they even know that it's a soul-sucking job. They know that it's not easy. And they know that they don't want to do it. And then they, they say, but one day I'm going to be CEO. One day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire early. Or one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, make something of myself or whatever. This, this pain is only going to be temporary. And that gets them through. That gets them through. And what I've realized is that for some people, right, for some people, they could actually do that. For some people, they actually do become the CEO. And for some people, they do become the CFO. But for 92% is probably a good percent. Something like 90 to 95% of them end up just getting stuck in the CEO, in the, in the finance job or the accounting job. And it's because you realize, you're like, wait a second. I have this plan. I have this plan to eventually be a CEO, CFO, you know, some big shot, whatever. But you have no idea how hard it's going to be. You have no idea what you have to do to put to put it in. And for you to just keep pushing that off saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just be that someday. That's just that's just a little bit of a coping mechanism, in my opinion. And so that's the problem. Right. So the question is. Why don't you be real with yourself? Why don't you be real with yourself and say, wait a second, no, no. I am going to be a finance person and I'm most likely going to get stuck in finance for the rest of my life. Or 
or I'm going to pick this path, more generally, I'm going to pick this path, and most likely I'm going to lose all my access to all the other paths. And the reason we don't say that is because we lose our freedom, right? We lose our freedom, and we also lose the dream. We lose the illusion that we could potentially go and get it. And that's what Belle's struggling with right now. So in this moment, when she decides, okay, do I really want to... Do I really want to save him, right? Do I really want to invest in him? She's really saying, I am getting rid of the person that I, of the, of all the other people that I could be. You know, maybe something like the person who is married to Gaston, right here, right? Like once she decides to invest in this, she decides, okay, I am getting rid of plan B, which is the person who's going to marry Gaston. And I'm getting rid of the, we'll say, reliance on my father, and I'm also getting rid of the culture in which I have been raised in. She's got to do all of that in this decision, and so, and she's got to give up her freedom. She's got to give up her potential. You know, the, the archetypal person of Peter Pan is, um, oh, is it what Pan means? Yes, yes. So this is, this is something Jordan Peterson figured out. Pan means everything. Right? The idea of Peter Pan means that he is the, well, he's potential, right? He could be anything, and he could be, in terms of Pan, he could be everything. And that's why he decides never to grow up. He decides to keep that illusion, even though he never really wants to settle on something. Settle on something that, settle on a path that is worthwhile. And... Well, that's why she's saying I'm gonna let go of my childhood. So what happens is she chooses to um, she chooses to to offer him care and to and to help him and to invest in him, you know. And the next thing that she says is I can't go back to my childhood, right? That's it's part of the next song. She says she realizes that once I decide to choose this path, that I I have to get rid of all the other paths. And this is an idea that I saw. I saw it a while ago, and I think it's a really, really interesting idea. And I think maybe I'm starting to understand it a lot deeper. The idea lies in something like this. There, was a, there were colonists, I think it was American colonists, many years ago. And this was in the 1600s, you know, this is when we actually had boats and navies, and, um, and there was no airstrike, right, right? This was like... This was like something like conquering America. And the, the, was it English? Not important. So you have the, you have the captain of, we'll say the, the English, right? The, the people from England going up against the Native Americans. And they were outnumbered. So the, the, the people from England were completely outnumbered. I think it was, it was either a hundred to one or a thousand to one. So they show up on their boats and they say, oh God, this really, this is really, really bad. Like we are going to get absolutely slaughtered here. And the captain of the boats, the captain of the English boat, uh, of the English Navy takes a torch and lights up all the boats. He burns all the boats and he says, well, now there's no plan B. Good luck. Right? There's no option for retreat, and that's the exact idea. The exact idea is, okay, if you're going to put your all into something, if you're going to do something that is actually worthwhile and actually worth achieving, then you have to set your whole mind on it, and there can be no plan B. That's an idea that Mark Cuban talks about all the time. Mark Cuban is an entrepreneur. He says, you got you to gotta burn your boats. You got you to gotta get rid of plan B, and you got to not be Peter Pan. That's exactly what you're saying. You're getting rid of the potential that you could be, and you're actualizing the potential. One of the things that I write in my journal every morning is sort of like an affirmation, is don't have potential be written on your tombstone. Right? That's a really, that, that idea is probably the reason why I'm doing this lecture today. You know, it's probably the motivation that got me up to do it today, because... I am full of potential, right? I'm young, right? Whenever we're young, we are all potential. And 
It's a question of whether or not you actualize that potential. That's it. That's it. Whether or not you turn your, your illusions, dreams, thoughts into actions that actually have an effect on the world. There was another great quote that I think really sums it up perfectly. It says something like, yes, the smallest act of kindness is better than the grandest intention. And that's the they're really hitting on that idea. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, really strong idea that you could apply to your life. It's like, okay, you really think that you're a good person? What, do you think that you're a good person because you believe that someday you're going you're gonna to donate to charity and someday you're going to help people? It's like, no, no. Help people now. Help people now. It doesn't have to be something big. It doesn't have to be the huge plan that you've been doing, that you've been offering up to see if you could, you know, we'll say, help the starving children in Africa. But... Just do something small. Just do something small. And take action to actualize your potential. That's a good idea. So she kind of, she kind of, we'll say, puts that idea into words where she says, I was innocent and certain. Now I'm wiser, but unsure. So she realized, okay, before I was this bright-eyed child, essentially, right? Because this is a maturity story. She was a child. She was somebody who relied on her parents and was incredibly immature, incredibly immature. And now she, but she was certain, right? That was the thing. She's like, I could handle this. I could do it. You know, you say you're going to fight the 10-foot dragon and you're like, oh, I could take down a 10-foot dragon. No problem. But what happens when the dragon's 30 times bigger than you thought it was? And, well, I've come to, Well, so that's actually something that they've proven in, um, man, I can't remember the name, but this is something that, um, that was psychologically proven. It's something that makes such little sense, but at the same time, at the same time, I can understand the biological mechanisms behind it. What actually happens in your brain is whenever you decide to go for a goal, right? And you have limited information on that goal. So let's say, I tell myself, I'm going to read, what book is this here? I'm going to read this book. No problem. I could do it, right? And when I look at something like this, I say, okay, I could read this book. I could do it. You know, all I have to do is, is read for three hours a day and for two months. And that's, and that's it. That's all I need to do. It's not that much of a problem. You know, that's the child here. You're innocent, but certain. And, um, and for whatever reason, psychologically, this is true. So for whatever reason, we, you have the most confidence when you're about doing something, when you try to achieve it. That's like saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm just going to go to the gym and I'm just going to go to the gym every day. I'm going to quit smoking. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to quit smoking. I'm just going to do it. You know, throw, throw your, throw your cigarettes or your jewel in the toilet and say, that's the end, right? It's great. But what ends up happening is we overestimate psychologically. We overestimate the likelihood in which we're going to actually get it done. And I think, I think that's the motivation that drives us forward. Because let's say, well, here's the thing, right? 92% of people who set on a, on a major life goal fail. If you knew that going into it, then maybe you just, maybe you would just say, I don't want to do it in the first place. It's not worth it. Uh, 8%? What is that? What are those numbers? I, and then you just never get up off the couch. You just never tr strive to improve yourself. So it seems like we've developed some sort of biological mechanism in which we can be innocent and certain. Say, okay, I'm going to take some action, but I, have, I really have no idea what I'm handling. I'm, I'm incredibly naive. And then hopefully the ones who are strong enough are the ones who can confront, who can confront the the dragon, right? The even larger dragon at in pieces, right? So that you can keep motivating yourself to go on, but at the same time you you can we'll say handle the shock of realizing that you're not as prepared as you thought you were. So That's where she is right now. She says, wait a second, this is going to be hard. 
this is not going to be easy. I really don't want to do this. Or, or at least I really want to do this, but at the same time, it's just not, well, easy, right? It's not easy. The dragon that I'm facing is, facing is going to be larger than I thought. So she's, she essentially decides to be a heroine and... Okay, so I think this is the point where I want to, yes, this is definitely the point, where I want to explain a point that might be a little bit difficult, right? A point, a point that I'm sure a lot of women are thinking, and I really want to kind of, kind of clarify something that I think is, is probably the most contentious idea Maybe the most contentious idea today, but I'm going to see if I could, if I could kind of explain it in a way that, well, makes both sides happy as well as helps you understand the world a little bit better. So it lies in this idea of the heroine, right? And it lies in this idea of the hero. And one of the main problems that women have with mythology is why do men get to be the hero? Right? Why do men get to go and do all these incredible things and uh, and do all these you know get to explore and pr and progress and and go into the world and do all these you know and achieve things and then women their her their heroine's journey is simply just taking a man and refining him, so it's like their case is why is the hero's journey so much more glorious than the heroine's journey? And to start off, I'll say something like fair enough. Because there is something incredibly, we'll say, glorious about the hero's journey. But there's a lot more than that. So I really want to break that down. First, it lies in the difference between the hero and the heroine's journey, right? So the hero's journey is really simple. Go out and achieve things, right? Go and achieve things, achieve status, get things, slaughter the animal, and then come back, you know, um, save the city, all of these things that lie sort of around the external. The, the heroine's journey is also really simple. Take a man and refine him, right? I read this book, it was called A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and that's exactly what it is. It takes the, it takes the female romance and erotic stories and sort of breaks them down and tries to find the, the commonalities between them. And it seems like that's something like the heroine's journey. Take the man who's unrefined and refine him. That is Beauty and the Beast. That is... Twilight, that is Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's it's all of these stories that are so embedded in our culture and they just they still are popular today. So So what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is really simple, right? Men are more focused heroes are more focused on things and achievements and status, and women are more focused on people. Now the first question that I offer to women is why is that a bad thing you know like so so here's something that we've sort of been able to to prove across all of uh, throughout cross-cultural studies which is essentially all something that we could come as close to figuring out as a universal truth so there's a cross-cultural study where they they ask people, you know, in different cultures, different ethnicities, different places, they ask you, what makes you happy, right? First of all, I think it was something like, are you happy and why are you happy? And across cultures, the one thing that they found that was, that made people happy amongst all cultures is friendships, friendships, relationships, you know, close bonds with people. People, right? People is the thing that made people happy. And that's not a surprise, right? Like, we know that. We know that to a very strong degree. But at the same time, you look at the hero, and the hero doesn't go for people, right? The hero goes for things. The heroine goes for people. So one of the things that I've noticed across, we'll say, the women that I've met is that or at least the women that I've met in business school. Because the thing about business school is that it is very masculine dominated, obviously. And at the same time, all the incentives 
are masculine driven, right? You think of something like money, money is things. So, you know, you really, you really need some masculine traits, a masculine personality to be able to um, succeed in the, ma in the, in the capitalist system. And that's, I think that's the main reason why women want to be heroes. Like if you were to kind of leave us to ourselves, it sounds like heroin is a better deal. It sounds like to be a heroine, to be somebody who works with people and helps them, that is like the ultimate goal. It's like, that's amazing. But um, but because the financial incentives clearly are, are more focused on things and they're more focused on masculine traits, I, I can imagine why, and it, it makes sense why women want to be heroes, but or at least some women want to be heroes. But one of the things that I've noticed in... in um, in a business college, you know, is that most of the women that I've met are very feminine, right? Like you'd really think that that the women in business school are really, really masculine, right? In terms of you know, really money driven, really focused on on gaining things and gaining the, we'll say. Well, as much money as possible. You know, I have, I have a guy friend who says he wants to make something like $10 million by the time he's 25, right? That is a hero's journey right there. Like that is a straight hero's journey that probably, that has nothing to do with relationships, right? But what I've noticed about females that I've met around here is that most of them care more about relationships. Most of them care more about, about their friends and their family and things like that. And... Then it got me thinking, right? Why? Why why do the women not choose to work the 80-hour weeks, the 90-hour weeks in mass and um and sacrifice their relationships like men do? And the reason is quite simple. It's like why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? I'm sure, I'm sure and I'm this is what I've come to a conclusion, a simple conclusion on is that Working 80 to 90 hours a week does not make you happy, right? I, th I think we could come to that, that realization. And then it's something really simple as to if a woman has good relationships and she's happy, why would she want to sacrifice that for 80, 90 hours a week? Why? Like, what is the reason for that? And, and, and the, another way of formulating that question is, why would you want to adopt such masculine traits? And the answer seems to be really simple. You don't, right? Like, you really don't. And there's really, there's such a small incentive to actually go and do that if you're actually looking at it from a full humanistic point of view. And, and then they're also sitting there, and this is, this is one of the things that I've noticed in... in um, in business school is really simple. It's like, okay, let's say, let's say even, let's say you choose to do the 80, 90 hours, hours a week. You're still not guaranteed to be successful. You're still not guaranteed to be successful. There are a lot of other people who are also doing the 80, 90 hours a week. So it's not even like if you decide to go on a hero's journey as a female, that you're going to be successful. It's like, no, no, you're taking a risk. And at the same time, you're giving up your the the thing that's going to make you the happiest, which is your relationships. So therefore, it's more of a question as to why do men do that, right? I think there was there was a great stat that I heard the other day: twenty one percent of CEOs in America, or twenty one percent of either Fortune five hundred CEOs or just CEOs in America, are symptomatically psychopaths, like they have psychopathic tendencies, and that's insane. That's insane. They're the people who have a psychopath is someone who has very little emotional response. And well, doesn't really like people, right? Doesn't really like people. And for some reason, they really like animals, which doesn't make that much sense to me. But someone like Hitler, like Hitler was a psychopath, you know, um, a lot of the a lot of the hyper, hyper successful men are psychopaths. And, um, or have psychopathic tendencies and well they don't really have relationships they don't really care about that all they care about is working the 80 90 hour weeks and get are you that naive are you really that naive are you never going to see a cigarette ever again are you never going to see a jewel it's like most likely well well they're everywhere so instead of 
and this, this will be the final point on this, it's like instead of blocking yourself from the outside world, make it so that you're strong enough to confront the outside world when it manifests itself. And that's what Luke decides to do here. So, well, that's as much of a hero as you could possibly think. So now we could now we could figure out what is this outside world, right? Because Luke already confronted his shadow. He's already done something like that. But the question is, well, what is his shadow, right? And first of all, and second of all, how is he going to confront that in the real world? Sure, he had his internal transformation, but what is how is he gonna act that out? Because we've already established that acting out your values is maybe the little moments that exist throughout the day. You could use them to think. Right, because you know you go and you sit on the toilet, and something about there's something about sitting on the toilet that that gets you thinking, it gets you going, right, and you start kind of analyzing all the things that happen throughout the day. But now take a moment like that, take a, a moment that used to be used for thinking, and use it as a moment for not thinking. Use it as a moment on social media while just you're sitting there looking at, um, we'll say, just endless videos. The problem with that is you never get to digest information. You never get to handle each moment as they come up. And what ends up happening is you distract yourself every single time from each of the, each of the we'll say, bad potential catastrophes that are happening in your life. And eventually you reach the point where you just, you've, you've bottled up five things and you haven't even noticed that you've bottled them up because you've been so distracted. And I read a book, it was called Digital Minimalism by, um, by Cal Newport. And I think it was a really, really strong idea. That's exactly what he talked about. He said that humans are wired for silence. You know, like there should be times in your day where you are just sitting there thinking. And that is just something that we never had to manufacture. It just always happened. It always, it always just so happened that there were times in your day for thinking. And well, now we don't have that anymore. And the problem with that is you you bottle up all your thoughts because you don't even realize that you're having the thoughts and it all burst out in an, in an anxiety attack. And it all bursts out. I think this is one of the, the most relevant things I've seen. It bursts out right before you go to sleep because you really think about it. If you've been distracting yourself for, we'll say, 15 hours or 16 hours, and then the one time where you're, where you're all alone with your thoughts is the moment right before you go to sleep, your brain has some catching up to do. It has some catching up to do. It says, okay, you've forgotten or at least not taken into account the three potential anxieties that could confront you. And you have to you have to look at them now. Right? This is what your brain's saying right before you go to sleep. It's saying you need to think. You need to consider a plan for this potential problem that's existing. And well, it all hits you at once. Right? When it all hits you at once, instead of happening one at a time, that's the reason why people don't sleep. That's the reason why people can't sleep. It's because your mind just keeps going. And I've noticed this so many times that in, in my personal life, where my mind just keeps going right before I sleep, and I usually see that as a sign that I usually sees that, oh my God, I usually see that as a sign that I need to think more throughout the day. So, well, getting back to this. So that's the, that's the reasoning as to why she goes into the West Wing, right? You have, well, okay, so let's, let's relate that back literally to the idea. The idea of all these repressed thoughts are your repressed personalities. All these repressed thoughts are your repressed Mrs. Potts and Lumiere and, and Cogsworth and all of these people. And, and they're, just, they're just begging you. They're just begging you to go into the West Wing. They're begging you to check out these thoughts because if not, your body knows that you're going to have an anxiety attack. Your body knows that you're going to hold back all these thoughts for so long and just throw them in the closet. So that's why she goes into the West Wing, and that's why you have all the tools that are, all the personalities that are sort of leading her in that direction. I kind of like that idea. And... So that's what happens, right? So she goes into the West Wing, and of course, of course, what's going to happen? The Beast finds her and tells her to get out, because of course he does, right? He's repressing them. 
He's repressing them. So he doesn't want her to see the potential life that exists within him because the unfortunate reality is, and I think they depicted this really, really well. So you would imagine in a, in a symbolic sense right now, Bella's going in and discovering the life that exists within him, the potential good that exists within him. And the problem with it is that it's a rose. The problem with it is that it's a flower. And the thing about flowers is that flowers die and flowers are always falling apart. So what does that mean? That means that he's vulnerable, right? So whenever she decides to go into him, she she realizes that she hits a she hit a part of him that's incredibly vulnerable, and and that's why he screams at her and tells her to get out because the the well I'm not going to say unfortunate reality because there's there's some good about it, but the reality is whenever you decide to we'll say pull back the layers of the things that you've repressed, you'll realize that there's a reason why you're repressing them in the first place, right? Just think about it, right? So you can think about this simply in somebody who had what, well, I there's this idea called an adverse childhood experience, right? An adverse childhood experience is something like, we'll say, well, there, there are many things that, that consist of, but 64% of of children have something called an adverse childhood experience. And what that could be is maybe your parent or family member has is addicted to drugs. Maybe your parent or family member has gone to prison or has a mental illness or you had you were sexually assaulted and there was one more. I'm going to go with divorce cuz I think or at least we could just call that an adverse childhood experience or Maybe you were physically abused or something like that has happened to you. And, well, you just kind of bottle it up. You just don't really worry about it. And you ask the question, and and here's an important question. It's like, why do you bottle it up in the first place? It's because it's painful and you don't want to, and you don't want to look at it. So the reality is once you pull back the layers, once you start to figure out, okay, maybe I should Maybe I should stop suppressing this thought of my childhood and and why it had such a negative effect on me. When you do that, you're going to have to confront the fact that it's painful to confront those thoughts. There's a reason why you su- 